you can turn your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. I shouldn't have to tell us where to find that book, at least I hope. Genesis chapter 12. Several years ago, it is now, I guess, I, we had studied together the first 11 chapters of Genesis and then went on to some, something else because there is a real divide in this book between first 11 chapters and the last 12. And I said at that time that I would come back to um, Genesis chapter 12 and the life of Abraham, and uh, this today is that day. And we finally get back. I'm trying to keep my promises. It wasn't until I considered Abraham that I remembered I had made that commitment. And uh, so here we are. And it's interesting because the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis covers about 2,000 years. And from chapter 12 through 50, the rest of it is about 350 years. The first 11 chapters, we see much of the foundations of, of life and our faith and, and our understanding of God and his ways. And as we get to chapter 12, we see God beginning to develop for himself a redeemed people, a special people, a unique people for his glory, much as he continues to do today in the life of the church. Abraham is one of the most significant characters in the Bible. He... In the covenant that God gave him, we find that God establishes for himself a chosen people, a special people. He gave them title to the promised land, as we'll see this morning or next time or actually throughout this study. And he provides through his family the, uh, the, the, the Savior, the one who came and died, died for us. And then we see also throughout the New Testament, Abraham used as an example of the faith. He's called the father of the, of the Jews. He's also called the father of the Christian faith because it's through his family that salvation was provided in the, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to read a few background verses here. Just I told you to turn to chapter 12, but I want to back up into chapter 11 because it gives us just a little bit of background. We don't know a lot about Abraham's uh, pre-call history, but here we have it in verse 27 of chapter 11. It says, this is the genealogy of Ter Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, Haran, and Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father, Terah in, the, in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Ishkah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah was 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So a little bit of genealogy there. Abraham's family, his father and his, and his brothers and, his, and wives. And the first thing we might ask ourselves, where is Ur? You know, we have an idea where Canaan is. We have an idea that where Israel is. But where was Ur located? Well, Ur is, was located in what is modern-day Iraq. In fact, some commentators suggest that Ur of the Chaldeans may have been just a general reference to the region. It might have just been a, a reference to the, the area in which they lived rather than a specific city. And yet excavators have found, archaeologists have found uh, remains of Ur uh, just north of the Persian Gulf, um, just a few miles off the Euphrates River. And some believe that at one time, at Abraham's time, Ur probably was a coastal town right on the river because the mouth of the Euphrates continually moves and shifts as through, has throughout history. And the interesting thing about Ur of the Chaldeans is, is that it was a progressive city, and Abraham was called from 
this city that was a wicked city. And most commentators believe that when, when Abraham left Ur, he left a, a prosperous city. It was a place to live. It was the, you know, it was the apple, as we might say, of the Babylonian or Chaldean empire and area. <clears throat> and most commentators believe that here when we see this departure, because, you know, in the end of chapter 11, we find Terah grab, you know, gathering his family and heading for Canaan, yet we find the call in verse 12, but most people believe, most commentators believe that this call became earlier. In fact, in verse chapter 12, verse 1, where we see God's call to get out of your country, chapter 12, verse 1 says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, he had said. So he, something he had already told Abram previous to this reference here in chapter 12, verse 1. And, and we are told in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, that, that God's call came before he dwelt in Haran. It came earlier. So it seems that this, this, the verses in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where God tells Abraham to leave and get out, came before the, the record at the end of chapter 11. And in reality, it was Terah that gathered the family in response to that call to begin to move. And... Haran, to where they went, where they traveled to, was in modern-day Turkey. It's kind of along the Euphrates River, so they kind of traveled northwest. You know, Israel from, from Iraq is pretty much straight east, a little north, excuse me, west and a little northwest. But they went straight northwest, north and northwest, up, up along the Euphrates River. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Rather than crossing, crossing the Sinai Desert, they follow the river. They follow the river, and Haran is on that river system. It is currently located in Turkey, and there are things, there are, the city is excavated there as well. It was a long ways. It was, it was a long, long walk and journey. We forget sometimes how far these Old Testament saints and even New Testament apostles walked in their, in their response to the call of God. So let's go ahead and read this call that, that Abram apparently received before the family left for Haran. Verse 1 says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now God calls Abraham here out of Ur. And God began here in, in this portion of history, biblical history, to establish for himself a chosen people. And this call began with a departure, a call out of. God says, get you from. He said, it's time to leave. It's time to leave this city, its environment, and its lifestyle. And as I said, there was no natural reason to leave. Unless you're a pioneer and an explorer, it was a good place to live. It was a prosperous city. The economy apparently was, a, was, was healthy, and there was no reason to leave other than the fact that God, at this point in history, was going to begin to do, redeem for himself a special people for himself. And when he called Abram out of Ur, he was calling him out of a very wicked city, from, from a, wiki, a city that was affected by sin, the curse, and all the consequences of evil. 
And so he's calling Abraham out of him. And that's a picture, isn't it, for you and I today? Because God's still calling out a people for his name, isn't he? In fact, let's turn for a moment to Titus chapter 2. Because what we find here in Abraham is a tremendous example of the walk of faith. Now, the Old Testament Israelites, Abraham and his family, were different from us in a sense that they are an earthly people. God promised them a physical land to which they were going to uh, possess and own. They today look forward to, the, to that, enjoying that land, possessing that land under the King of King and Lord of Lords in the second, in, when Jesus comes in the second coming to establish his millennial kingdom, and that is yet future. They are physical people with physical blessings. You and I today are a spiritual people. We're blessed with spiritual blessings, and we are looking for an eternal city. We're looking, for, we're looking to be with our Lord in glory, and that's our hope and our anticipation. But the, but the pursuit and enjoyment of those things is, is, is accomplished the same way. It is a walk of faith. It is by faith we enjoy the promises and blessings of God. It is by faith we endure the hope and anticipation of a better and brighter future in the, in the presence of God. And so Abraham becomes, a, becomes an example quoted throughout the New Testament of faith and how we are to walk by faith. And that's why his call is similar to ours. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for that blessed hope. That's our hope. That's our anticipation. It's the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. That's what God is doing today. He's calling us out. He's calling us to, to create for himself a special people. And yet, the church is distinct from Israel. In the Old Testament, God called Israel to a promised land, and he has promises yet to be fulfilled that, that involve that land and a king and a kingdom. And he's calling you and I to salvation in Christ, to a spiritual heritage with a heavenly hope of being with our Savior. And along the way, he wants us to be zealous of good works. And that call begins with the gospel, doesn't it? Jesus said in Luke 5, 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God is calling sinners to a change of mind, change of mind about themselves, their sin, and salvation. And that's why Acts 16, 31, gospel verses, such as Acts 16, 31, I should say, are a call. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's God's offer to rescue people. And that's what he was beginning with Abraham. With Abraham, he's beginning a family that his desire was to have a purified people, a special people, a holy people, a people that would serve him faithfully and consistently. In fact, that's the promise of the new, the new, under the new covenant of the kingdom age, that millennial age. When Jesus comes back, he's going to purify his people, Israel. They all are going to know him, according to Hebrews chapter 8. And they are going to walk with him. And that's God's desire today. It begins with the gospel, first of all. To become a child of God, to belong to him, to enter into that relationship with him as forgiven sinners. And it continues with the call to sanctification. That's God's call to you and I today. And that's why these lessons to Abraham are so pertinent to us. To us, God says in 2 Corinthians 6, 17, Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, 
Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. And so God's calling us not only to salvation, but then it continues with a call to sanctification, to live different than the world, to think different than the world, have different priorities in the world, different passions in the world. That's what it means to be separate. God's not telling us to all run and hide in some commune somewhere in the woods and, li and live physically apart. He's calling us to think different, to see life different, to gain his perspective, a spiritual perspective in this world. And as then separated saints, we can shine as a light. And God's call climaxes with the call to glory, doesn't it? Whether by death or by rapture, we're finally going to be with him, we're going to see him, we're going to be like him. We'll see him as he is. God is in the business of redeeming people. And, it, and that's, what, that's what the story of Abraham is about. It's about God's interjection in human history at the Tower of Babel, a, a colossal failure of man in seeking to solve their own problems on their own terms. God then inter intervenes in history and begins to build for himself a new family in the person of Abraham. And so if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, we find, first of all, that the Lord had said to Abraham, get out of your country. That was his call. It was time to leave this pagan world, this pagan lifestyle, into a place where God would develop his people. The next thing he tells them is not only get out of your country, he says, he says from your family and your father's house. That's an interesting comment, isn't it? From your family and his father's house. God called Abraham. He didn't call Abraham's family. He called Abraham to leave his father's house you know, and yet what we see in the preceding chapter is that it didn't quite happen that way. The head of the family, Terah, took his family, gathered them, and they started for Canaan. And they got stalled in Haran, you know, a little over halfway there maybe on the, on the land route. And, and it probably was the fact that the reason it went that way is because Terah decided he wasn't going to let Abraham go on his own. He was going to take the family and being the head of the family. Family was important that in those days. And Abraham, no, no, no doubt, respected the, the, the headship of Terah and, and allowed him to take the family and join him on that journey. And it slowed him down, didn't it? They, they ended up parking in Haran. The journey stalled until his father passed away. And God warns us in regards to sometimes the, those relationships, whether they're family or other close loved ones in reality, that can sometimes hinder our, progress, our progress, progress in Christ. In fact, turn with me, if you will, over to Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus warns us about this. Matthew chapter 10. And it's a balance that I believe God wants us to achieve because God is the one who instituted the family unit. A family unit was important in the Old Testament. It's important today. It's the institution that God has designed to raise children. School boards, by the way, don't have a right to dictate what you teach your children. Parents have, a, have the responsibility and authority to dictate what their children are taught. It's given to them by God. And yet God also recognizes that sometimes it's those relationships that can hinder service for Christ. Sometimes those relationships hinder people from coming to Christ. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. Now you think, what in the world does that mean? You know, we just got through the Christmas season, it's peace on earth and to, to men of goodwill. Well, Jesus is talking about a different area here. 
He said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, that sounds kind of harsh and kind of direct. In fact, Luke uses the terminology, puts it a little differently. He uses the word hate. If you don't hate your father and mother, not in the sense of, of vehement hate. That, when hate's used in that context in the Bible, it's a word of contrast. And then Ma and Matthew puts it in the sense of loving more. Who do you love more? Who do you love most? One of the challenges as a, of a father as your children grow and leave home is to let go, isn't it? And recognizing that you know, when the Bible says children like the arrows that go out, of, uh, out from the quiver, it means that they become their own family unit, don't they? And we become responsible before God to make our decision. And that's why I've always thought it'd be interesting, and I've watched the young people. I know my experience, and I've watched other young people through the years who get to a point, and it varies sometimes in their age, and when they begin to think more for themselves, even if they're raised in a good, solid Christian home, they need to have their own convictions. They need to have their, their, their own their own beliefs based on God's word. They have to know the truth. And I remember the time in my life that was challenged when exposed to um, things that were contrary, and I had to decide where I stood based on God's word. And that's every young person that needs to develop that through the years, that they might stand on their own convictions based on God's word. They must make their own decisions as being led by God and directed by his word. And that's what Jesus is warning about here. Don't let love for Family supersede love for God. Love Him first. He can direct our paths, and He will direct our paths. And what a joy it is to live as unto the Lord, rather than sometimes just being lazy in our in our Christianity and following the dictates of others. God desires that we love Him first, and that's what happened to Abraham. And He illustrates that. You know, though He loved Ter Terah and his family, Terah slowed him down, caused him to pause, and Lot became a problem. Lot was a high maintenance individual which hindered Abraham's testimony and, and pro progress as well. And it doesn't mean that we completely abandon family. There's a balance, isn't there, that God wants to achieve. And, the, and, it's a, and that's accomplished when we heed this warning to love God the most, first and foremost in our lives. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 12. And so... God calls Abraham from his country. He wants to pull him out of this wicked country and environment to establish a new culture, a divine culture, a godly people, a special people. God calls him from his family and to make sure God, he, that Abraham would love him the most. In fact, we find that later in Isaac, don't we? we got that Abraham did not withhold his only son, Isaac. That was a test that continued, the family test. Do you love God and trust him most of all? The third thing he tells them here is to a land that I will show you, to a land. God says, I got plans for you, good plans. That's a land I'm going to show you. And this promise to a land is the first of three elements in this covenant that God makes with Abraham. We call the Abrahamic covenant. It was Abram then. He eventually became Abraham. But this Abrahamic covenant, we find three tenets in these verses, and we'll, we'll, and we'll look at them one at a time. God promises him here a promised land. He promises to make him a great nation or a seed, and he promises that he's going to 
Through him all the world would be blessed. And so we call it the land, the seed, and the blessing, just for short. Three elements of this tremendous covenant. And a covenant is a promise God makes with his people. Sometimes they're conditional. In the Mosaic covenant, which involved the Ten Commandments and all the sacrifices they were to offer and all the laws they were to follow, it was a conditional covenant. If they were to follow it, they would be blessed. If not, they were going to be cursed. Here, what we find in this covenant is an unconditional covenant. God says, this is what I'm going to do. It's unconditional. It's not conditioned upon man's response. Now, Abraham's and his family's enjoyment of this covenant is dependent upon their walk of faith. They may not always enjoy this privileged standing, and we find that throughout the Old Testament history. In fact, when we studied a little bit in Zechariah at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah in our studies in the last couple of weeks, we find that God warns them, that tells them, I says, you're living sparsely. That should be a hint to you. You're living sparsely, and, and you're the children of Almighty God. I'm, I promise to bless you, but you're living sparsely, which is always a sign for Israel, a sign of discipline, of God trying to get their attention. And so we find here this covenant promise. It's an unconditional promise that God says, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I am going to bless you, bless the whole earth through you. The land promise, you know, something that's much disputed in the world today, fought over continually, but it is a land that God gave to his people. And I'm going to, let's just look at a few verses. We'll see when we get there. God reaffirms this over and over again. Verse 7, if you look ahead in chapter 12, says that Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the, oh, excuse me, that was chapter, verse 6, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were then in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Chapter 13, he, re he reaffirms this promise again. Verse, thir verse 14, and the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants should be, could be also numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Chapter 15, verse 7. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. If you jump down to verse 18, oh, wrong chapter, wrong verse. Verse 18, sure. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, and so on. Chapter 17, we find the same thing when, when God gives him the sign of the covenant in verses 1 through 8. This is an unconditional covenant that God made with his people, and God's going to keep it. For God's going to keep his promise. Israel has not always possessed the land. They don't fully possess the land today, but it's because they had rejected the Savior and the Messiah, but someday that day will come when they will, when they will com completely Enjoy the promise that God has given them. We find this reaffirmed to Isaac in Genesis 26. We'll see it reaffirmed to Jacob in chapter 28. This land belongs to Israel because God says so, and he owns the earth. This is his created world, and he can do with it what he wants, 
And he says, I've given the title of this land to the family of Abraham, the nation of Israel. It is the land that God led them out of Egypt to possess under Joshua. It is a land that God brought them back to after the Babylonian captivity. It is a land that Jesus will rule in his millennial kingdom and, and, and into eternity. The land belongs to them. And that's why this aspect of the covenant is really to believe that for the Jews to trust that is a, is a leap of faith, is an example of faith. But let's go back to Hebrews chapter 11, our scripture reading from this morning. Hebrews chapter 11. And it points so, something out to us here. Because Abraham and his family were much like believers today. Because they never fully realized this promise in their lifetime. But they never lost faith. Remember in verse 13, here Hebrews chap chapter 11, we're told, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. They were assured of them, because God assured them of them. They embraced them, and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Sounds like you and I today, isn't it? God says we have a heavenly hope that we are looking forward to. And in the meantime, we're pilgrims and strangers on the earth. Verse 14 says, For they that such th such say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. Notice a homeland, not a vacation land, a homeland. That's what we're looking forward to. That's our home. That means this world's not our home. And truly, if they had called to mind the country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. They could have returned to Egypt. And God gives us here a hint in our lives that when we, when we become earthly focused and earthly minded, the country from which we've been called out of, this ungodly world, we, ret we can return, and we do return. And we live for the things of this, of this earth. And, Egypt, and Israel often cried in their wanderings in the wilderness, oh, why did God take us out of Egypt? You know, we, you know, they forgot they were slaves, but they just could think of all the comforts of home. That was behind them. A great example for you and I today to live by faith, realizing that, yes, in this present life, we are, we are not living in glory. This is not our place of rest. We find spiritual rest in Christ, but we find physical labor and service and sufferings here as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we walk by faith, knowing and being assured of that we have a heavenly home awaiting for us, that's when we can put our feet up. That's when the suffering is done. That's when life becomes glorious in the presence of our Savior. Verse 16 says, Now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And that's what Jesus said to us in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. And what God is saying here is whichever country you're mindful of should affect how you live. Simple, isn't it? If we're mindful of life here and that's all that life consists of, then that's what we're, what we're going to enjoy, and that's what we're going to reflect. But if we have hope, live in, in light of our hope, our sure hope, our anticipation of glory, then we can be heavily minded and, and useful for the cause of Christ. You know, our sure hope is really twofold in a sense. Yes, we, 
we, we have the sure anticipation and hope of, e- of eternity. This world's not our home. We're just passing through. Jesus could come at any moment. It's our hope, whether by death or by rapture. But we also, I believe, have a sure expectation, and that's to live in the reality of Jesus in us today. God has given us a piece of heaven in our lives today through the Lord Jesus Christ who lives within us. Christ who is our life. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Christ is our life. And we can experience that, and that's an anticipation. That's why we're no doubt here this morning, so that we can learn the word of God, is that God may, may help us to know and enjoy the life that we have in Christ. And we can enjoy that heaven on earth. That doesn't mean we live apart from living sacrificially, from laboring for the things of Christ. It's amazing how we as Christians should live counter to this world system. The world tells you to live for ease and comfort, build your nest, make sure you, you know, buy the, you know, make sure you can afford the best mattress with the most, you know, with, a, with that super plush cover on top and, and sleep, you know, you get your, get your nine to 10 hours of sleep a day and, you know, and, and have a place with air conditioning and, you know, and everything's about ease and comfort. You know, sometimes my cars are more comfortable than the furniture I have at home. You know, the, and, and, that, and that's what we live for. We t- pad our portfolio so we can have a life of leisure and enjoyment in our, in, in our retirement years. And yet God says, you know, serving me, you never retire. And it's not about comfort, it's about hardship. It's about sacrifice. It's service. It takes work. It takes sacrifice for y- when you and I serve Christ. And sometimes it, takes su- it involves suffering in our growth and deserves undeserved suffering in our persecutions and opposition. And that's the difference between what are you mindful of. Abraham's life was not a life of ease. I don't know if he had a feather bed or a straw bed back in Ur, but he probably didn't enjoy that on his journey, did he? Much like the Lord Jesus in his walk on this earth. He didn't have a place to lay his head. And yet when we become earthly-minded, we get so preoccupied with earthly, earthly comforts. This isn't completely related, but I came across this this week, a devotional by a preacher named Samuel Rutherford. And I thought it, it, re- it relates to this study a little bit here. I'm just going to read this, so follow along. I'll try to speak slow enough and distinct enough so you can understand. He said this, If your Lord calls you to suffering, do not be dismayed, for he will provide a deeper portion of Christ in your suffering. And that's our hope, isn't it? The softest pillow will be placed under your head, though you must set your bare feet among thorns. Do not be afraid at suffering for Christ, for he has a sweet peace for a sufferer. God has called you to Christ's side, and if the wind is now in his face, you cannot expect to rest on the sheltered side of the hill. You cannot be above your master who received many an innocent stroke. The greatest temptation out of hell is to live without trials. A pool of standing water will turn stagnant. Faith grows more with a sharp winter storm in its face. Grace withers without adversity. You cannot sneak quietly into heaven without a cross. Crosses form us into his image. They cut away the pieces of our corruption. Lord, cut, carve, wound. Lord, do anything to perfect your image in us and make us fit for your glory. We need winnowing before we enter the kingdom of God. Oh, what I owe to the file, hammer, and furnace. Why should I be surprised at the plow that makes such deep furrows in my soul? 
Whatever direction the wind blows, it will blow us to the Lord. His hand will direct us safely to the heavenly shore to find the weight of eternal glory. As we look back to our pains and suffering, we shall see that suffering is not worthy to be compared to our first night's welcome home in heaven. If we could smell of heaven and our country above, our crosses would not bite us. Lay all your loads by faith on Christ. Ease yourself and let him bear all. He can, he does, and he will bear you. Whether God comes with a rod or a crown, he comes with himself. Have courage. I am your salvation. Welcome, welcome, Jesus. Quite an astounding view of suffering, isn't it? And that's what we're called to. When God calls us out of this world, away from the priorities, the priorities that beset us, and to, the, to a land that he is preparing for us, he calls us to suffer and to serve him. And that is the hope that God lays before us. And we need, and, and we need to take encouragement from Abraham that we're going to desire to die in faith, die having maintained the faith, to trust to God and to live for him. It's not an easy road. Even though they follow the river, you're to Haran, and then down into Israel, it's not an easy road. Easy walk. I imagine their sandals didn't have the support of our best boots, hiking boots have today. But they walked. Some rode. I can't imagine riding a, riding a Camelac is the most comfortable means of transportation either. And God calls us to discomfort in reality. Not that we seek it. Not that we're going to go home and all sleep on two by tens so that we can suffer here on earth. I still like my pillow top mattress. But God's called us to be willing to sacrifice and serve him as he calls us out of this world to be he a heavenly people. A people for his name, as Peter calls it. Let's go back to the book of Genesis. And so the first element of this, co this covenant was God calls them out of their country, from their family and father's house to a land, a land promise that God gave them. And that hope, that hope that we have of our heavenly home should have a, a drastic effect on how we live, shouldn't it? Next thing he tells them, it's a seed promise, he's going to make of them a great nation. Here in Genesis 13, we read earlier that God was going to make their descendants like the dust of the earth, like the stars of the sky, or the sand of the, sea, sand of the seashore. And God promised this to Abraham. Now, Abraham was about 75 years old. I think it says down here a few verses that he was 75 years old at this point, and he had no children. And God promised them uh, the children of multi multitude of children. But that's a story for later. That's going to be the story of coming chapters. And God promise him, promises him him. And that has to be a, a, a step of faith because Abraham was, you know, nearing the end of childbearing years. And yet how was a great nation going to come from him? But he trusted God. We're told in the book of Romans that Abraham believed God and was counted to him for righteousness. But that promise came with a blessing, this idea of a great nation which we see today, the multitude of Jews. And what I've always thought was astounding is I don't know how many People groups retain their identity, you know, for 3,000 years, 4,000 years. That's amazing. The Jews still know they're Jews. 
Not too many people groups that you can go that far back in history to the Tower of Babel and know what family you were part of. But God has preserved his people. It's just an evidence of God keeping his promise to make of him a great nation, and he promises them a blessing that goes along with this great nation, being a great people, a multitude of people. First of all, we see in verse 2, he says, I will bless you and make your name great. God first gives them a general blessing. And it's expected that the children of God should live in the blessing of the care of God. That's, that should be an expectation if we're children of the, of the king of kings. You know, and Israel was blessed physically when they followed Jehovah, when they, when they walked in his ways and obeyed him. God blessed them. And today we're blessed spiritually. We're, we're told we ha- we've already possessed spiritual blessings. We saw that in the book of Ephesians in the first few chapters, the blessings that we possess in Christ, and we enjoy them when we walk by faith. And so God gives them, first of all, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be on your side. And then he gives them another aspect of the blessing, the association of blessing and cursing here in verse 3. He says, I will bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you. You know, blessing awaits, according to this promise, those who recognize Israel as God's chosen people and treats them as such. Some people believe that one of the reasons our nation has been blessed in the past is because of our support of Israel. But God also says he's going to curse those who abuse his children. And we've seen that throughout history. You know, though at times God has allowed foreign nations to defeat Israel, to bring them to captivity as a mode of discipline. And God used that. He told Israel, he's going to discipline you in this way. Yet God punishes even their abuse of that youth, you might say. In our Bible studies on Wednesday night, we saw in Zechariah 1.15, he says, God says, I'm exceedingly angry with the nations at ease, for I was a little angry, and they helped. In other words, I was angry at Israel, and they helped in my discipline, but with evil intent. We find in those prophecies that God is going to punish them for their abuse of Israel, even though God allowed them to be a conquering nation. And And we see that throughout history. We're going to see it in the second coming. When the world rises up against Israel and Jesus comes and delivers Israel from the Antichrist and the world powers and defeats them. Even in modern times, you can't help but recognize the preservation of Israel amongst living amongst hostile countries that far outnumber them, how God has preserved them through their wars and their battles throughout their recent modern existence. I want you to notice something, though. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, maybe we'll have to close here this evening and finish up on this covenant next time. When you look at, especially from a, from a historical perspective of the blessing that God has given to Abraham and his family, we recognize his choosing Abraham and his family wasn't because they were special. They became his special people because he chose them. Notice what it says here in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. He says, For you are a holy people, that means they're set apart to God, to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. But the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the least of all people. But it's because the Lord loves you, 
And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the land of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and so on. God says, I didn't choose you because you're such a great people and a special people and a wonderful people. I just chose to do it this way. It was my choice because I chose to love you. That he chose Abraham, and it's much like our salvation today. Jesus told us in John 15, 16, he says, you have not chosen me, I've chosen you. And God chooses us because he loves us, and that's the amazing thing about grace. Israel, though, throughout centuries, has tried to take their special position as a, as a means of feeding their ego, thinking that they're better than the average bear, they're above everyone else. And God says, that's not the case. I didn't choose you because you were better, smarter, more, more powerful. In fact, throughout history, we see Israel winning battles when, they're, when they weren't even trained military folks. Outmanned and outgunned. Because that's what God uses. He uses the weak to confound the wise, does he not? And God has chosen us today. And though we are not part of Israel as a chosen nation, we are God's peculiar people, according to Peter. We are his church, we are his body, and he has a purpose for us. He's called us out of darkness. He's made his enemies his friends. We now can walk in the light and represent him. Because along with this blessing, God told Israel, Abraham, you're going to be a blessing. And that's God's expectation. You're going to be a blessing. Those who know God, enjoy God, walk with God, are meant to be a blessing to others. It isn't meant to inflate our egos, to think we're better. It's to put us in a place of service, to bring to others the good news of a God who saves by grace alone. Well, our time's gone. Let's, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful um, for the fact that you are an unchanging God who keeps your promises. And Father, this promise that you made to Abraham, this covenant, this foundational, important covenant that you made to Abraham as you began to redeem for your, to yourself a special people, an earthly people, yet a holy people. Father, we're thankful that, the, that we have seen much of that fulfillment of this promise throughout history because you are a God who keeps your promises. And Father, thank you that you are the same God whom we serve. You have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You've made us a special people, your church, your body, sons of God, the bride of Christ, which you've called us to be a blessing to others, to one another, and a witness of this world. Father, help us to shine as lights and to realize that we need to be mindful of the heavenly country. We be mindful of things above that we might orient our lives towards the things of our God that we might shine as we ought. So Father, take these things and make them helpful and apply them to our lives for your glory now. In Jesus' name, amen.